This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 17th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Europe has much to teach the United States about restricting speech. Most of those lessons come in how not to protect it. At a Cato Institute forum, Danish lawyer Jacob Michangama detailed some of the ways in which European countries' good intentions have worked against free expression. I should say, I don't want to sound like uh, an alarmist. Uh, Western Europe is still a more open and pluralist place than almost anywhere else in the world when it comes to to free speech. So I'm not arguing that Western Europe um, has turned authoritarian. But what I am concerned about um, is the mix, is the mid to long-term development um, of the legal and political culture of free speech in Europe. And I think my concern can perhaps best be expressed by traveling back in time to the very first democracy in the history of mankind, uh, the Athenian democracy. So in 411 and 404 BC, the Athenian democracy was was twice overthrown by oligarchic coups. And and, uh, the very first victims were actually the values of free and equal speech that the the Athenians prized uh, so highly, at least if you were... Uh, not a slave, uh, if, and if you were a man, uh, and uh, so on, but still. Uh, what, what happened was that democratic institutions uh, were gutted and, uh, dem- and Democrats were killed or exiled. I think these two coups actually serve as history's first confirmation of what Benjamin Franklin would reaffirm almost 2,000 years later. Whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech. But the coups also made the Athenians so jealous of their democracy that they condemned their most famous philosopher, Socrates, to death. He was guilty of association with uh, several of the oligarchic cons- uh, conspirators, and he rejected the basic religious values of the Athenian democracy, at least in the minds of his accusers. We should always be cautious uh, about, um, about, about drawing parallels between the worlds of the ancients and, and modernity, but I don't think the analogy is completely off. Because today, European liberal democracies feel threatened by forces that want to do away with basic uh, democratic values. But might the measures adopted by European democracies end up sacrificing the most fundamental value on which the very democratic order rests? That's what I'll try to, to, to answer. But it was not long ago that the idea of free speech and democracy in retreat were sort of outlandish notions. From 1980 until 2003, the number of countries with a free press grew from 51 to to 78. Or put differently, in 1980, 34% of the world's then 161 countries had a free press. In 2003, 41% of the world's now 193 countries had newspapers without censorship. And this, of course, went hand in hand with an unprecedented spread of democracy and human rights at a global uh, level. But then in 2004 uh, marked the beginning uh, of a constant decline. Uh, You can see um, global press freedom uh, stats from from Freedom House. Um, Lasting until this day, from the high watermark of 41% in 2003, we're down to 31% of the world's countries with a free press in 2017. In fact, only 13% of the world's 7.4 billion people enjoy free speech, while 45% live in countries where censorship is the norm. Um, And unfortunately, it's not only China or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia 
that, um, that, that, that drive this development. Um, Europe, too, has become less tolerant of controversial speech. Of course, you have uh, outliers like Russia and Turkey that are essentially authoritarian states. Uh, they have plummeted in the rankings. But the rot has now also spread to Hungary and Poland. And yes, even though less dramatically so, to the very heartland of democratic Europe, including Germany, the UK, and France. So what are the drivers of this development? I think first, it's important to note that attitudes towards free speech differ across the Atlantic. So according to, to this 2015 uh, Pew Research poll, more than 90% of Americans and Europeans think it's very important to be able to criticize the government. So far, so good. However, the devil is in the butt. When you get more specific on where people say, I support free speech, but Europeans and Americans part ways. So as you can see, 67% of Americans think it is, it's important to protect statements that are offensive to, my, to minority groups, and 77% support the right to offend religious feelings. In Europe, the median is 47 and 46%, respectively. And Germans, in particular, stand out. Only 27% of Germans support the right to offend minority groups, and a mere 38% the right to offend religious feelings. And as we shall see, these differences in attitudes also translate, translate into laws. So European free speech protections are less robust than the First Amendment and therefore provide governments with more leeway, leeway when they trim the uh, free speech around the edges. So where have European governments snipped uh, free speech? I'll suggest three areas where I think that I think have been the main drivers, although this is by no means uh, an exhaustive uh, picture. Uh, one is national security, the two is what we could call multiculturalism, and the, three, the third one is populism. So let's start with national security. I don't think there's any degree of relativism that can disguise the fact that Western Europe faces a real and serious threat from jihadist terrorism. It's also an iron law of history that national security emergencies spell trouble for, for civil liberties. You can just ask Socrates. But several European countries have taken measures that go significantly further than targeting terrorists. Sympathizing with terror has actually become a crime in many uh, countries. In Britain, a woman was sentenced to one year in prison for downloading Al-Qaeda's Inspire magazine on her phone, even though she wasn't involved in terrorism uh, herself. And recently, the British Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, argued that people who repeatedly streamed jihadi websites and far-right propaganda should face up to 15 years in prison in order to sort of limit extremism. In my home country, Denmark, a man was prosecuted for adding a smiley to a Facebook post sharing the news of a terrorist attack. Dozens of people in France have been convicted for, quote-unquote, glorifying terror. But it's not only those who fail to distance themselves from jihadist terrorism that are swept up by national security laws. In Spain, a rapper was recently sentenced to three and a half years in prison for lyrics supporting Basque terrorist groups and insulting the king. So if you applied that standard here in the US, most of the CDs that I listened to as a teen would be contraband and sort of the acts like NWA, Public Enemy and Ice-T would be behind bars for, for, for very long periods of, of time. That would have robbed me from many good experiences as a teenager. When it comes to the second, uh, what I call multiculturalism, then democratic Europe's approach to, to anti-discrimination and tolerance is very much built on the idea of never again. And, and this, of course, makes a lot of sense 
because Europe has experienced the catastrophic and genocidal results of totalitarianism. And with the influx of immigrants and refugees uh, post-World War II, uh, the idea that social peace in diverse society requires limits on free speech has long been dominant. But what this approach does is that it basically inverts um, the, the very value of tolerance from being an obligation on each of us to suffer even the ideas that we hate to establish officially sanctioned taboos. And so you have hate speech laws aimed at protecting religious, racial, and ethnic minorities from, from hatred and offense in all member states of the European Union. In fact, since 2008, it has been a legal obligation under EU law to criminalize hate speech. So, so in other words, as an EU member state, you cannot say we're not going to criminalize hate speech because then the commission would uh, say you're in violation of your obligations. And hate speech laws are often vigorously enforced. Last year, German police conducted a raid of 60 far-right uh, persons who were engaged in online hate speech. So they had been peddling you know, Nazi propaganda and whatnot, and then one day they get a knock on the door from the German police. Of course, some of those who are targeted are bona fide Nazis, but hate speech and offense laws tend to undergo what I call scope creep. So take Sweden where not only was an artist sent to jail for exhibiting posters with caricatures of prominent black Swedes, the gallery owner was also convicted and the posters ordered destroyed by a court. In the UK, an atheist was convicted for religious offense after leaving caricatures of the Pope, Jesus, and Muhammad in a prayer room in an airport. In Belgium, a politician was banned from public office for 10 years after making derogatory comments against Muslims. And in France, a mayor was fined for advocating a boycott of Israel. But I would say that there's little reason to think that restricting freedom of expression fosters tolerance and social cohesion across a Europe that is increasingly divided along ethnic and religious lines, and where anti-Semitism and other forms of intolerance is, is on the rise. I mean, identity politics is bad enough on Twitter, but when police and courts become involved, the stakes are infinitely much higher. I think actually such laws uh, fuel the feeling of separateness uh, of modern Europe by legally protecting group identities against offense rather than fostering an identity rooted in common citizenship. Of course, minorities may be offended by disparaging comments, but limiting uh, free speech to protect them from racism and offense is in fact a very dangerous game. During the cartoon affair in, in my home country, Denmark, you, you remember a, a Danish newspaper published cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which offended uh, Muslims all over the world, including in Denmark. And, and Danish Muslims tried to have the, the responsible editor convicted for blasphemy uh, and hate speech. Um, at the time, the center-right, particularly Denmark, said there's no way we're going to uh, compromise on free speech. Free speech is sacred. Now, a decade later, we have a center-right government in Denmark that has adopted more restrictions on free speech than any other government in our history since World War II. And guess what? Almost all of those restrictions on free speech are aimed in practice at Muslims. So religious hate preachers, um, for instance, can now face up to three years if, they, if, part, if, as part of religious teaching, they expressly condone certain illegal acts, which may include polygamy. So if you're an imam and you say... Polygamy is part of uh, Islam, and that's a good thing. Theoretically, you could go to jail. 
Um, and uh, the latest uh, uh, was, uh, is a political agreement in Denmark to ban the religious uh, garment, the burqa and the cap, face covering uh, garment, uh, which, which of course is also uh, touches on, on religious uh, freedom and religious uh, speed, speech. Uh, so, so, so by abandoning principle, I think Danish Muslims have essentially helped pave the way for majoritarian laws aimed at themselves. Um, and, and I think this is actually small fried compared to what would be in store if someone like, say, the Dutch politician Gert Wilders comes into power in the Netherlands. I mean, he wants to ban the Koran. Uh, he wants to ban the construction of mosques. Uh, and so basically, the only thing that protects minorities in Europe ultimately are, are of, of course, uh, free speech, freedom of religion. And so by eroding those uh, standards, um, you, uh, basically no one is more than a political majority away from being the target rather than the beneficiary of laws against hatred and offense. So the second issue was that of populism. And I think we've seen the past years have been something of a perfect storm of, of events coming together to conspire against free speech, if you like. Take Brexit, the role of fake news on social media, Russian influence in democratic elections, the refugee and immigration crisis, and of course the rise of, of so-called populist parties. And these developments have made traditional European political elites extremely afraid of institutional breakdown in favor of populist forces opposed to European integration, immigration, and indeed liberal democratic values. I, I don't know uh, about you, Professor Miller, but I very much see the recent German social network law as a response to populism and, and sort of the spike of anti-immigration uh, sentiments in Germany following Angela Merkel's uh, decision to, to open the doors to, to asylum seekers in, in 2015. What the social network law does is that it requires online social networks like Facebook and Twitter to remove illegal content within 24 hours or risk a fine of up to 50 million euros, which I guess is just shy of $60 million. Uh, formally, the law doesn't expand the scope of criminalized speech, so, so it doesn't add new offenses, but it'll, it, since in, in the first instance, it's up to Facebook, for instance, itself to remove uh, the illegal content, um, and, and often, very often it'll be difficult to establish what is illegal content. Um, so that provides an incentive to Facebook and Twitter to err on the side of censorship, because you don't want to risk a fine and you don't want to fight with the most powerful government in, uh, in Europe, so you better uh, comply uh, and just remove uh, uh, bigotry um, uh, online. This actually means that Facebook has a setup in Germany which would make the Catholic Inquisition quite envious. They have 1,200 people working to review what must be a depressing mix of cat videos, duck face selfies, and swastikas. Um, uh, uh, imagine, imagine doing that uh, uh, 10 hours a day. Um, and, and what has happened is that uh, a, a, a member of the German Jewish community had his Facebook account deleted when he uploaded a video documenting uh, an anti-Semitic rant aimed uh, at, at, at a Jew. And Twitter has blocked the, uh, the, 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 the account of a, a satirical magazine which parodied a far right, uh, the updates of a far right uh, politician. In fact, the German law is so wide-ranging that last year, members of Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party proposed their own bill uh, in the Duma, which Reporters Without Borders called a copy-paste job. 
So normally when dictatorships copy the policies of democracies, you know, red lights should be flashing. But, but just today I saw a poll that 87% of Germans approve of the law and only 5% actually disapprove. So, so, so apparently uh, the, the government uh, doesn't have anything to fear here. The next frontier in, in, uh, in combating populism is, of course, the most elusive of concepts, fake news. And French President Macron, uh, French President Macron has already said that they will uh, adopt a law in France targeting false information. Italy has taken uh, steps uh, of their own. And I think this is probably where you have the, the, the biggest potential for, for, for really, really uh, eroding free speech. If, you, if we establish a president in Europe, that governments get to determine you know, what is true and false in, in, in terms of news and information, then uh, we're beyond the slippery slope. Fortunately, the, the, there's a working group under the EU that has forcefully told the EU Commission, don't go uh, down this way. But you know, uh, a new election coming up, that uh, are new Facebook scandals, new moral panics, and, and I, wouldn't bet, uh, I wouldn't bet against it. Jacob Michangama is director of the Danish think tank Justitia. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 